Well, hello, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. And from time to time, so far it's been, this will be the third week in a row, I've kind of come up with this concept of a an old-time radio grab bag. Now, I listen to an awful lot of old-time radio shows, but many of them don't fit into what we would normally play on our daily podcast. So I kind of throw those shows into a grab bag, and every once in a while I shake them up and pull some shows out. And that's what I've done today. Now, what we are doing with these is we are not giving any introductions to the shows. I'm not talking about the background of the show or any interesting points that are brought out in the show. We're just playing them. And uh, today we have four. And I will tell you a little bit ahead of time what, what we've got. We have an episode of X-1 entitled No Contact. We have an episode of Amos and Andy entitled The Rejuvenation Beauty Salon of Paris. We have an Information Please quiz show program. And uh, this one has Fred Allen as one of the participants and also Doc Rockwell. And then finally, we have a show called Radio City Playhouse. And the name of the uh, play is Level Crossing. So if those sound interesting, stay tuned. Because we're going to play them back to back to back to back with no uh, no comment in between. And when they're over, the show will, will end just like that. I hope you enjoy them. And we will be back with our regular archive show on Sunday. And then next Monday, we'll be back with a comedy and Tuesday, a drama, Wednesday, a mystery. And on Thursday, our regular old-time radio western. Enjoy. for blast off. X minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, X minus one. Fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company presents X minus one. Tonight's story, No Contact. It was in the year of 1982 that spacemen first discovered the great galactic barrier. In the past ten years, rocket travel to the moon and the nearer planets had become commonplace. And then men fixed their sights on a more distant star, the remote planet known as Volta. Five exploratory ships went out and none came back, each in turn disappearing mysteriously at the same vanishing point, at an invisible wall somewhere in the vast outer reaches that became known as the Wrecker of Spaceships. 
the Galactic Reef. And yet, the explorers refused to admit defeat. It was on June the 2nd, 1987, that the rocket Star Cloud made ready for takeoff, the sixth to attempt to crack the barrier and win through to Volta. Now hear this. Condition green. Two minutes to blast off. Condition green. Two minutes to blast off. Well, Lewis, this is it. I don't suppose you'll be needing the ship's doctor up here on the bridge during blast off. I think not, Smitty. There's little chance of acceleration bends in these new overdrive ships. I'll be in my office then, counting vitamin pills if you need me. It's only a few steps. Good luck, Lewis. Thank you, Smitty. Uh, Lieutenant Collier. Uh, yes, sir. You're relieved. You'd better get down to navigation control and take over. Yes, sir. Uh, Lieutenant. Yes, sir. We've never flown together before. This is your first flight in a space vessel as big as the Star Cloud. Yes, sir, but I was trained in oversized jobs at the Naval Academy. Well, if you're half as good a navigator as your father was, you'll do fine. Thank you, sir. Did you ship out with my father? I served under him on one of the first rocket runs to the moon. I see. I almost went along on his last trip to the barrier. Um, too bad about that. Yes, sir. That's all, Collier. Paulison. Get me the ground control tower on the field. I want to talk to Colonel Harrison. Yes, sir. Go ahead, sir. I've patched in the bridge speaker. Colonel Harrison? Yes, Captain? We're standing by for takeoff in 30 seconds. Good. The field's cleared of all personnel. We'll try to reestablish radio contact immediately after takeoff. In any event, there'll be a 24-hour ground monitor. Fine. Good luck. Hope you make it. Thank you. Bridge to navigation control. Have control. Call you up. Ready, Lieutenant? We're ready, Captain. The course is in the integrator for takeoff at 1,200 hours. All right. Stand by for blastoff. Bridge to engine room. Fire up your rocket chambers. Take off at exactly 1,200 hours. I'll read you off. 20 seconds. 19. 18. 17. 16. Hold it. Revoke all orders. Who turned in that alarm? Uncovered a stowaway. Stowaway? Where? Hiding in sickbay. Dr. Smithson found him. Have him brought up to the bridge. Engine room, kill your rockets and stand by. Thorson, this is Colonel Harrison at ground control. What's holding you up? Trouble. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? There's a stowaway aboard. Stowaway? Yes, I thought your men were supposed to police this base. What's the All matter right, with you? Captain, take it easy. You know what this delay can do to us, don't you? One minute later, takeoff can throw us a million miles off course. We'll have to reintegrate the whole works. Well, look, how long do you think it'll take Don't to... bother for me for a while. I'm busy. Stupid idiot. Captain Thorson? Yes, come in, Smitty. Here's your stowaway. Now, Court Marshal. Oh, Charlie. Can you use a good radio man, Skipper? Well, I see you two have met. Met? Skipper and me made 50 trips to the moon together. Didn't we, Skipper? Charlie, if you wanted to come along, why didn't you volunteer? I did, Skipper. They they turned me down. Now, what's wrong with you? Acceleration bends. They said my arteries wouldn't stand another trip. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But they're wrong, Skipper. I, I got one more good trip in me. Listen, Skipper, you, you you know that these green kids, they don't know the first thing about space radio operation. Now, you, you put a man like me on and I'll, I'll be getting you bedtime stories from Mars. Charlie, you know the regulations as well as I do. I can't take you much as I'd like to. Colonel Harrison will murder me for this. Well, I'm sorry, Charlie. I'll have you put a ground. I'll tell you what, I'll ask Harrison to put you on his ground radio contact, and it'll seem as if you're right here with us. He won't do it, sir. Well, he'd better. I'll have him busted to corporal for letting you sneak aboard. Look, Charlie, you, 
Look, you'd better be off. Uh, Pollison. Yes, sir. I'm sending this man aground. Give him time to clear the launching platform. Yes, sir. So long, Charlie. I'm I'm sorry. Good luck, Skipper. I thought you were going to have him drawn and quartered. If it had been anyone else, I would have, Smitty. But Charlie, well, he's kind of special. He's been with me since my first command when we began the regular run to the moon. And if he wanted to come along this time, well, it's only through loyalty to me. You know, Lewis, I didn't realize it before, but you're almost human. Captain Dawson, Nav Control, call you. Oh, yes, Lieutenant. Uh, how badly are we fouled up? Can you recalculate the course, or shall I cancel the takeoff? I've already plotted a new course on the integrator, sir. If we take off in exactly 30 seconds, we'll need to correct for only a one-degree deflection. I can do that before we breach the stratosphere. That's quick work. Are you sure? Yes, sir. Positive, sir. All right, Collier. I'm putting it in your hands. We'll blast off on your signal. Bridge to engine room. Prepare to blast off on navigator's signal. How are we doing, Collier? Coming on the bearing, sir. That's four, three, two, zero. We've intersected the course vector. Good work, Collier. Course is corrected, sir. We're ready to go into atomic overdrive any time you say. All right. Stand by. Yes, sir. Now hear this. Now hear this. Prepare for maximum acceleration. Bridge to engine room. Kill your rockets. Rockets out. Fire up number one cyclotron. Number one ready. Fire up number two. Number two ready. Withdraw your dampening rods. Mission chamber ready. Blast tubes cleared. All generators operating at capacity. Take it over, sir. Go into overdrive at the count of zero. Three seconds, Mr. Collier. Three, two, two, one, one, zero, zero. How are we doing, Collier? On course, sir. She's running hot and true. My compliments, Lieutenant. This job would have done your father credit, and he was the best navigation officer I ever saw. Oh, thank you, sir. Start your gyros. Put her on robot control. All right, the bridge is yours, Mr. Collier. If you need me, I'll be in Dr. Smithson's office. Yes, sir. I see you got us off the ground. You can thank young Collier for that. Chip off the old block. You knew his father? As a matter of fact, I knew him very well. First-rate spaceman. Oh, is he the one yes, who... Yes, yes. He was lost in the galactic barrier on the second ship we sent out to Volta. Lewis, just what do you think this galactic barrier is? Oh, your guess is as good as mine, Doc. All I know is that five ships have gone into it, and none of them have come back out. You think it's a nit? How about Mestrovic's theory that it's a time warp in space? That the ships reach it and slip into another dimension. I think that's a lot of rubbish. My theory is that the galactic barrier is nothing more than a radioactive layer of some kind. Why do you say that? Well, we know that radar signals bounce off it like they were hitting an invisible glass wall. And we know that it destroys our ships and crews in some way. There's no other logical explanation. What makes you think we can get through it, Lewis? Because we're ready for it. The others weren't. The entire hull of this ship is completely shielded with lead. 
We can crack through any radioactive cloud ever detected. Besides, we're equipped with some new UHF radio devices that should enable us to maintain radio contact with Earth. Nothing can happen. Absolutely nothing. Now, who are you trying to convince? <laughs> well, myself, I suppose. Lewis, you've had your share of glory. First skipper to reach the moon back in 1962. You could have retired. Why are you risking this trip? Five ships are missing. Men like Prentice, Margotson, young Collier's father. I'm tired of seeing good men fed into that meat chopper. Then why are we going to Volta? We haven't any choice, Smitty. We're in a race, the kind of race where men and ships are expendable. According to the Interspace Code, the First Nation to reach Volta can claim it. Well, personally, I want no part. Out, Doc. I'll have to play physician, morale builder, and mother substitute for 112 slightly nervous men. Well, your morale doesn't sound too good, Doc. As morale officer, I can state without fear of contradiction, it is terrible. And something tells me as we approach that galactic barrier, I'm not going to be alone. Hello, Earth. Captain Thorson of the Star Cloud calling Earth. Hello, Star Cloud. Hi, Captain. Charlie. Well, I see they haven't court-martialed you yet. No, sir, thanks to you. Well, it's good to hear you. You can read us the funny papers on Sunday morning. Right. Now, how's our signal? Strong. Clear as a bell. Now, here's our log report for Colonel Harrison. You ready? Shoot. June 2nd, 1987. Four weeks out from Earth. Running through. No radiation. Operation normal. Still making our approach to the galactic barrier. That's all, Charlie. See you later. Good luck, Captain. I sure wish I was with you. How's the morale, Smitty? The men know we're getting closer to the barrier. They're beginning to show a little tension, Lewis. Oh, how's their physical condition? Any sickness? About half the crew has come down with space blues. Ah, I was afraid of that. Are they bad? Same as usual. Lips and hands with a bluish cast. Eyes are sensitive to infrared. I don't know. When I first started flying these tin cans, nobody ever heard of space blues. Well, now there's a theory it's caused by the terrific acceleration of atomic overdrive. Change in gravity affects the circulation. Hmm. What do you think? I think it's psychosomatic. I've noticed that the same men who get space blues under tension on a ship tend to get blue coloration back on Earth when they're upset. I guess it's just an occupational disease of space now. Uh-huh. You think it's just uh, nerves, then? Well, young Collier's got a bad case. I, I think it's tension from overwork. Maybe he needs some vitamins. Lewis, when will you realize that vitamins are not a panacea for all the troubles of mankind? Sir, I understand that you've relieved me from duty. Well, Dr. Smithson says you aren't looking very well, Collier. I'm giving you a rest. Sir, I feel perfectly able to continue. Your lips are as blue as Minnetonka. Captain, I'd like to remain at my post. Don't be foolhardy, Lieutenant. I'm not being foolhardy, sir. I have a special personal reason for wanting this expedition to reach Volta. Your father... Yes, sir. You think he might still be alive? I have to find out what happened, sir. I, I... I think I understand. Very well, Collier. Report back to duty. 
What's the reading policy? Uh, we're getting a plus five radar bounce now. Coming off the barrier almost as fast as we sent it out. What's the interval? Two seconds. Shortening steadily. This rate will hit the wall in the next few minutes. All right. Alert the crew. Sound general quarters. Now hear this. Condition red. We are now approaching the galactic barrier. All hands to stations. All radiation detectors to be fully manned. Full security will prevail until further notice. That is all. Uh, Policy. Yes, sir. The radar bounces up to plus six. We'd better try to make final contact with Earth. Is Spark still trying to raise the base? Uh, yes, sir, but he's not having much luck. Huh? Seems to be some interference. Uh, that's the radio room now. Yes? You got him? Well, cut in on the bridge speaker. The captain will take it from here. Hello? Star Cloud to Earth. Can you hear me, Earth? Hello, Skipper. I can barely read you. We're getting heavy static from Sunspot. That's not Sunspots, Charlie. We're right on top of the galactic barrier. Getting a plus... No, a plus seven radar bounce. Expect to hit the barrier almost any second now. Good luck, Skipper. If we crack the barrier and come through still in one piece, I'll try to get back to you on the high-frequency band. Got you, Skipper. Don't worry. I'll be waiting. So long, Charlie. So long, Star Cloud. Must be getting awfully close now, Captain. Echo's bouncing back so fast it's almost beating the signal. When they go inside, hold on to your hat. That's when we run into the wall. Any second. Hold on. Here goes nothing. Here it comes. Captain. (laughs) Nothing happened. We, We made it. We made it, Captain. No radiation, no time warp, no nothing. Now, the, the crew's gone crazy, sir. Let them. They've earned it. Doc, can you break out a few bottles of snake bite serum for medicinal purposes? I sure can, Lord. This calls for a celebration. How's your morale now? It couldn't be better. How's yours? It couldn't be better. What the... Condition red. Condition red. Radiation detected. Condition red. Radiation detected. Holy mackerel. Look at the needle on that indicator. Paulison. Paulison. Yes, I see it, Captain. Picking radiation like crazy. What's it like? Well, it's a strong impulse. What kind? I don't know. It's too long for a cosmic ray, too short for UHF. Whatever it is, sir, the ship is lousy. Well, we'll track it down, triangulate it, and make it fast. I want a directional fix. Yes, sir. Engine room. Yes, sir. We're picking up radioactivity. Is the fission chambers? No leak here, sir. Check your gauges. Nothing here, Captain. Must be coming from outside. Damage control. Is our lead shield leaking radiation? Well, keep at it. Paulison, how are you doing? Uh, I've got a fix, Captain. Well, what is it? Well, I'll have to recheck my figures. Well, hurry it up. Angle is correct, but well, I... Come I on, man, for Pete's sake, where's the radiation coming from? Sir, it's, it's coming from inside the ship. That's impossible. No, sir, I've checked it twice. Well, it's got to be the engines, then. If it is, sir, we're finished. Engine room. Yes, sir. That radiation must be in the overdrive pile. No, sir, it isn't here, sir. Are you certain? Yes, sir. All right, keep checking. There's only one thing left to do. Paulison, get a Geiger counter. We're going to start combing this ship inch by inch. Yes, sir. All right, turn it on. Yes, sir. All right. Ready, Captain. We'll check the atomic guns first. Come on. We'll uh, cut through the officer's quarters here to ordnance. Now turn here. Well, wait a minute, sir. Huh? What is it? The signal's weaker now. Yeah. Let's go back. Hold it. Hold it. Seems strongest right about here. Well, it doesn't make sense. Whose cabin is this? Lieutenant Collier's. 
Collier? Oh, he's down in the nap control, sir. Oh, I'll try the door. It's not locked, sir. Oh, it's in here, all right. Listen to that counter. Strongest over here. Open that wall cabinet. It's locked, I'll sir. I'll smash it. Shut off that Geiger counter. Now, what do you make of this, Paulus? Well, it looks like some sort of portable transmitter, sir. Must be foreign manufacture. I, I, I don't recognize the calibration symbols at all. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. Which raises a small question. What is Lieutenant Collier doing with a transmitter in his cabin? I don't know, sir. Well, I intend to find out, Paulison. Get down to nav control and bring Collier up to the bridge on the double. Well, hadn't we better find some way to shut this thing off first? I know a way. <laughs> Lieutenant Collier, I'm going to ask a few simple questions, and I want a few simple answers. Yes, sir. What were you doing with a transmitter in your cabin? Transmitter, Captain? Oh, you know nothing about it. No, sir, I don't. Do you recognize these calibration symbols? No, sir. Can you think of how it might have been placed in your cabin without your knowing it? No, sir, unless someone came in while I was on duty. Would that have been possible? I suppose so, if someone had a key. I found your cabin door unlocked. Well, I meant a key to the wall, Captain. I didn't say the wall cabinet. Well, I... Uh... You what, Lieutenant? How could you have known it was in the wall cabinet? Well, I just assumed, sir. Lieutenant Collier, I find it hard to believe you would lie. Having known and respected your father. Having observed the way you handle your job. However, I intend to get to the root of this thing. May I have your wristwatch, Lieutenant? Sir? Your wristwatch. Yes, sir. Paulison, turn on that Geiger counter. Yes, sir. Hold this watch next to it. Yes, sir. That's all. Lieutenant, if you hadn't any close contact with that transmitter, how do you explain the radioactivity of this watch? Well, I... I don't, sir. I think you'd better. To whom were you sending those signals? Condition red! Condition red! There's your answer, Captain. What is this, Collier? Alien spaceship approach! Alien spaceship approach! Collier, who's aboard that ship? All right, now talk! Very well, Captain. My mission seems completed. Your mission? Are you admitting that you're an agent of a foreign power? I am stating it. What nation? No nation, Captain. What? I am an agent of the Voltan government. Now, what? The government of the planet of Voltan. You're crazy. Are you so stupid, Captain? Did you think your people are the only ones who can invade another planet? What do you mean? We've had agents operating on Earth since 1945. I don't believe you. What do you think happened to those five ships, Captain? Where do you suppose we got our information? Your language, your culture, family background. Your appearance, you, you, you look like... Like Commander Collier? Well, is that so surprising, Captain? You see, Captain, we had a living model. I ought to kill you. That would be very foolish, Captain. I would advise you to surrender without delay. Alien ship now coming in range. I'll deal with you later, Collier Paulison. Yes, sir. Put this man in irons. Take him away. Don't worry, sir. We'll take good care of him. Carpenter, Robinson. Gunnery. Gunnery Richardson. What's the range? 10,000 meters. They're closing fast. Put your guns on radar tracking. Tracking. Coming on the bearing. Fire. 
Fire, Richardson. Richardson, did you hear me? Fire! What's the matter down there? Did you hear me? Richardson, answer me. It's no use to shout, Captain. Collier, how did you get loose? Where's Paulison? Lieutenant Paulison is dead. All stations, Lieutenant Collier has escaped. Seize him, men. Don't waste your breath. Your men can't hear you, Captain. What? Those still alive are my men. You're lying. No, Captain. Every ship that has ever left Earth was controlled by a Voltan crew. That's impossible. Those were hand-picked men. Hand-picked by us. I don't believe you. No? Then why not call for help? Carpenter, Robinson, Haley, report. You see, Captain? Carpenter, Robinson, Haley! It's quite useless, Captain. I would advise you to sit very quietly and do nothing. Very well, Collier. You weakness. What now? The ship will be taken to Volta for, shall we say, further experimentation. I see. Of course, there's one thing you hadn't counted on. Just what is that, Captain? Listen! <laughs> Are you in there, Lieutenant Carpenter? They can't all be dead. There must be one alive. Smitty, Dr. Smithson. Smitty. Smitty, what have they done to him? Lewis, oh, I... dirty. I, no, I, don't talk. I must lean, lean closer. There's not much time. Lewis, space blues. Space blues? What is it, Smitty? What are you trying to tell me? All men with space blues. Blues. Voltans. Hello, let me help you. Oh, Lewis, get message back to Earth. Voltan, fifth column. Watch out for space. Blues. Smitty. Oh, Smitty. Captain Thorson. Captain Thorson, you can't hide from us now. Come back to the bridge and surrender. Or my men will come and get you. Hello. Hello. Star Cloud calling Earth. Please, God, let me get through before it's too late. Hello. Star Cloud to Earth. Come in, please. Come in, please. Skipper, is that you? Are you getting my signal? It's coming in a little louder now, Skip. Keep sending. Oh my God, now look, Charlie, listen to me. Not much time. Get word to Colonel Harrison. Crew mutinied. Most of crew members, Fultons. What? Fultons. Spell that. V-O-L. Fultons. That's right. They're from the planet Volta. Skipper, Skipper, are you all right? Now, Charlie, this is serious. They'll be here any second. Now, listen, they have a fifth column on Earth. They're planning to invade you. You mean it? Of course I mean it. Tell Harrison, posing as humans. You can detect them by space blues. You got that only Fultons get space blue. Charlie, did you hear me? Space blue. I get you. They're breaking in, Charlie. I'm defending. 
warning you, you warn everybody. Captain. They, they opened the door. So long, Johnny. Tell her. Captain. <laughs> Captain Thorson. Hello. Hello, Star Cloud. What's the trouble, Sergeant? I was just trying to raise a star cloud, Colonel. I had any luck? No, sir. No contact. No contact, eh? No, sir. Nearly an hour since they hit the galactic barrier. I don't understand why they haven't tried to get a message back. No, sir. Neither do I. Oh, all right. I'll take over for a while. Yes, you you do that, sir. It's all yours. Right. Oh, and Charlie, uh, you better go out and get yourself some coffee. You look a little blue around the gills. Tonight, X-1 has brought you No Contact, written by George Lefferts from an original story of Lefferts and Ernest Kenoy. Featured in the cast were Louis Van Ruten as Captain, Donald Buca as Collier, Wendell Holmes as Charlie, and Bill Griffiths, Bill Smith, Matt Crowley, and Ken Williams. Your announcer, Don Pardo. X-1 was directed by Fred Way and is a transcribed NBC Radio Network production. And now, next week. When you want to take over a world, you naturally look for its weak point, some way to catch its people off guard. We live in a world where everybody loves a parade, a world of press agents and publicity stunts. But who would ever dream that invaders from outer space would take advantage of that weakness and actually hire a press agent to advertise their coming? Who would believe it was anything but just another publicity gag? At least, not until the terrible moment when it was already too late. The moment of X minus one. Amos and Andy. Today, a very enticing ad appeared in the local paper telling about the new Rejuvenation Beauty Salon of Paris, which is opening just a few doors from the lodge home. The kingfisher's wife, Sapphire, saw the ad and at this moment is on the phone discussing it with one of her friends. Yes, Emily, the ads say they make you younger looking and more attractive, too. I sure wish George would give me enough money to take the beauty treatment. Wait a minute, I get him putting the key in the door now. Goodbye, Emily. Well, hello there, honey. How is you? Oh, fine. Say, George, tell me, how would you like to have a real attractive wife? Well, it certainly would be nice, but I was married to you. <laughs> George, I'm talking about myself. I know a new beauty shop that guarantees to make you look 15 years younger. What would you say if I come home someday looking like I did when I was 25? Well, I'd say the same thing I said then. Honey, you got to do something about that face. <laughs> George, I ain't even got a job wrinkle cream. Wrinkle cream? What you want to put that on for? You're loaded with wrinkles now. <laughs> and another thing, George, when a woman gets along towards 40, she's got to help nature. But one thing, I got to touch up my gray hairs. Gray hairs? You wouldn't hear me complaining if a few gray hairs growed in? From where I'm standing, you ought to be happy if any color hair growed in. <laughs> Well, I had my hair cut this way special. See, when I get in the singe at the barbershop, I figure that if this side catches on fire, I got a fire break in the middle here. Ain't going over there. 
to the door. I'll answer. Well, Henry Van Porter, come in. Just passing by, folks. How are you, Sapphire? Hello, Henry. Sit down. I'm going back in the kitchen and get busy. Well, it sounds like you and Sapphire just had a little tiff. I hope there was no slugging. Uh, no, Henry, I'm away with talking boat and looking old. But I think she looks old enough as she is. Yeah, well, my wife wants to go to some beauty parlor and get her gray hair fixed up. Haven't worked on affairs no less, though. Yes, they all want to stay young looking. My wife feels that outdoor exercise is the way to do it. Every morning for the past two weeks, she goes around the bridal path of Central Park for a brisk canter. It takes her about three hours. Three hours? I know somebody that made a complete loop on the bridal path in about 20 minutes. Well, my wife could, too, if she had a horse. Yeah, well, the, the whole business of women trying to keep young and beautiful is really something, isn't it, Henry? It sure is. And that reminds me, I've got to run along and pick up my wife at the dancing school. She's attending a class in the ballet. Oh, your wife's going in for ballet, huh? Well, all the women go there to lose weight. I saw a rehearsal for one of their dance recitals, and they're doing the dance of the dying swan. Yeah, that ought to be pretty. Well, the ballet shows how the swans die and fall to the floor, and then come to life again. But in this version, though, they plan to lower the curtain after the swan dies. Mm, why is that? None of them women is able to get up off the floor. <laughs> Let me sit down here at the large hall desk here and see if I can't put a assessment or something on some of the members and get some money coming into place here. Who in the world could that be? Come in. Uh, how do you do? My name is Livingston. I'm looking for the Rejuvenation Beauty Salon of Paris. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where is that place? Uh, I'll look it up in the phone book for you. I think it's around this neighborhood somewhere. Uh, rejuvenation, rejuvenation. Let me get over to the Rees here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> beauty salon, huh? Yes, I'm planning to buy my wife a course of beauty treatments for fifty dollars. Fifty dollars, huh? Uh, funny thing, how you come in our beauty shop here looking for another beauty shop, ain't it? <laughs> oh, is this a beauty shop too? Oh, certainly. This is just the office here. Oh, now I recall that other place you was looking for. Uh, tell me, is that place any good? Well, it's not our policy to knock our competitors, but we sometimes refer to them politely as that uh, second-rate joint down the block. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. My wife seemed to like the name of the other place because it was French. Do you have a French hairdresser? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was born and raised right in France, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait a minute, I see him coming down the hall now. His name is uh, Andre. Oh, I'd like to talk to him. <laughs> I'd really like to talk to him about doing my wife's work. Yeah, well, he only speaks two words of English. Uh, come in, Andre. Hi, Kingfish. Them is the two words, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mr. Livingston, I'd like to have you meet Andre, the world's foremost French rejuvenator. How do you do, Andre? Now, wait, wait, wait. Uh, he, he don't speak English, you see. Well, parlez-vous, France. Yes, pa? Uh, well, he don't speak French neither, you see. Uh, even though he lived in France, he always hung out with the... Uh, with the uh, Swedish crowd. Uh, Swedish. Didn't you, Andre? Smorgasbord. Uh, uh, pardon me, uh, pardon me, Mr. Uh, but Andre here is a little confused. You don't mind if I talk to him in Swedish, do you? No, no, go right ahead. Uh, say, Andre, this I gave will pay $55 for Udebe treatment. Smorgasbord? 
smorgasbord. Right. <laughs> uh, well, now, mister, it's all settled. Just give me the $50, and you have your wife come in tomorrow when we officially open, and we'll go to work on her. We open at noon. All right, uh, here's the money. I'll have her come in. May I have a receipt? Oh, yes, yes, a receipt right out. Right, right. She'll receive the $50. I'll just initial that. Thank you. She'll be here tomorrow. Goodbye, Andre. Viva the smorgasbord. <laughs> oh, did you hear that? Andy, we are in the money, boy. We better go out and get some equipment and stuff, because we're going to start working on that woman tomorrow. Is we supposed to be running a beauty saloon here? Yeah. Yeah, and who can tell, Andy? We might become a famous beauty and cosmetic player just like that fellow out in Hollywood, Max Fracture. Yeah, this is great, you know what? Yeah, oh, look at that 50 bucks. Andy, you know. We is in the money. And it's gonna be a great day. When you're down and out, lift up your head and shout, there's gonna be a great day. Hallelujah, brother! Angels in the sky promise that by and by we're gonna have a great day. You know that Gabriel will warn you, somebody born, you will hear his horn. Rudy Tootie, it's not far away. Hold up your hands and say, there's gonna be a great day. When the skies were dark, came Noah's Ark. Amen. When the lion roared, came Daniel's Lord. Amen. Lord, help those who pray. And on Judgment Day. If you believe, he will receive. shop here and see if we can get some information. Yeah, we gotta find out what kind of stuff to use in our beauty shop. Well, hi, Shorty. Well, if it ain't my two pounds, uh, hi, <laughs> uh, Say, Shorty, we done gone into business. What is the main equipment you gotta have for a successful beauty parlor? Well, the, the first thing you gotta get is a, is a big... Uh, what, you, what you gotta have is, is one of the... Uh, uh, what you really need is when you get women. Shorty, one of the things we want to specialize in is making the hair beautiful. Yeah, well, I read in the beauty magazine that age shampoo was the best thing for the scalp and hair. 
So, so this morning I brought down some eggs and Mr. Van Porter come in and I gave him a wonderful egg shampoo. I, I, I used three eggs on his hair. Yeah, how did it work? I thought it worked fine, but when Mr. Van Porter walked out, he said his hair felt a little lumpy. <laughs> next time I'm only going to boil them eggs for three minutes. Well, we're going to try to make a lot of money, Shorty. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get more business myself. I, I, I now give a special combination. A shave, a haircut, a shampoo, a massage, and shoe shine for 25 cents. Yeah, well, how can you do that without losing money? Well, I've, I've been pretty lucky so far. I ain't had no customers. <laughs> Tell me this. Has you got any cream or something for a woman's gray hair? Gray hair? Oh, say, wait a minute, fellas. I, I, I got a dozen jars of a concoction back here. I, I'm pretty sure that it's great for a woman's hair. Well, why don't you try it? It might be just a thing. It, it's got everything in it. You, you, you can have it for nothing. Oh, that's great, Shorty. We'll take it and use it on the woman's head. Yeah, here, here you is, boy. It's all yours. Yeah, now, suppose we want to get some more of this stuff. Uh, uh, where can we get it? Well, the fella that makes the salve, he, he, he used to mix it up in that building next to the fish market on the corner. <laughs> but, 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 but he had to move. Why'd they have to move? Couldn't they stand the smell of the fish? The fish market couldn't stand the smell of the salve. <laughs> and in this reading room here at the large hall really looked like a beauty parlor, don't it? Yeah, where'd you get that barber's chair? Well, there's an old dentist chair that I borrowed from the junk man. And I got a looking glass on the wall there, bathroom scales on the floor, and these jaws of salve all lined up for the hair. How does this long white coat look on me? Oh, you look like a French beautician. Good. Just don't turn around to the back to the woman so she'll see that word Texaco. That's all you got to watch. Wait a minute. There she come now. Everything look all right? Uh, come in. Uh, how do you do? Uh, welcome to Mademoiselle's Beauty Saloon. I am Mrs. Livingston. Oh, fine. Mrs. Livingston, I'd like to introduce Mademoiselle Andre. Oui, oui. How do you do? I think I have an appointment. Yeah, well, now let me look at my appointment book here. Let's see here. 12 o'clock, uh, Duchess of Winchester. <laughs> Nose jack up, adjust sagging jowls, and general chassis work. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got to get lunch before I start on that. 1 o'clock, Lady Windersmere. Facial lubrication, 2,000-mile checkup. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I'm sure my husband made an appointment for me. Well, yeah, my book is so jammed up here. You see, we are always busy between Yuletide and Christmas. Ah. Uh, Mademoiselle Andre here, don't you think we could squeeze Miss Livingston in while we're waiting for Lady Windersmere? Well, uh, we can squeeze her in for time, but from the size of her, we're going to have a lot of trouble squeezing her in that chair. Uh, well, now, uh, what is your problem, Miss Livingston? Well, first of all, I've been putting on a little weight. Well, I don't see how. If you get any more, I don't know where you're going to put it. Huh? <laughs> yeah, uh, how much do you weigh now? It's somewhere between 125 and 150. I lost track of it. Yeah, well, if you ever want to find it, look between 250 and 300. <laughs> uh, Andre, uh, maybe we could have Miss Livingston step on the scales here and get her weight. I don't think the scales go up that high. Uh, well, maybe we can weigh her one foot at a time. <laughs> yeah, or get another scales. Let her stand with one foot on each one. <laughs> Well, uh, let's try it anyway, Miss Livingston. Step right up on the scale. My small, but I'm anxious to see what the scales say. Yeah, well, with your stomach when you get up there, if you can't look around curves, you better not look down. You ain't gonna see nothing. <laughs> yeah, step right up there, Miss Livingston. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Where did the hand stop, Andrew? I think it flew out the window. <laughs> well, I tell you, I'm very anxious to lose weight. Well, now, the first thing I do, I will cut down all my starches. Yeah, don't eat but one box a day. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you think I ought to cut down all my calories? No, no, eat all the calories you want just so you don't fry them. That's all you say. <laughs> That's right. Calories ain't fattening. I had a half a dozen of them for supper last night. Yeah. Uh, Miss Livingston, we'll give you some reducing tablets next time we see you. Well, now, I'm especially anxious to have you work on my hair. You can see I'm getting prematurely gray. Yeah, well, have a seat in the chair here, and we'll give you a treatment. Yeah. Sit down there. That's it. Now, uh, Andrew, let's, uh, let's uh, look at the scalp here and see what the situation is. Hold yeah. still there, Miss Livingston. Mm-hmm. Got a bunch of follicles, all right. Yeah. Is they moving around? No, no, no. I, I, I mean hair follicles. Oh. Say, do you think you could change my gray hair? Uh, Andrew gonna work on it right now. Yeah, hand me that special hair stuff. Yeah, here he is, Andrew. Now, I'll put a gob of it right here on the part there. Then I'll work it in all over your knob. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, rub it in good there. Oh, this is really a secret formula you was getting. Andre here won't even tell me what's in it. Well, I can feel a burning sensation on my scalp already. Yeah, I can feel it on my hands, too. Oh, wonderful ointment. Ain't no fly in this stuff. Well, do you think this will make my hair curly? It might. I notice one of my fingernails is curling up here. How's you coming, Andrew? Well, there he is. I think that does it. My scalp is really burning. Well, now, that proves the follicles ain't dead. I would say the operation's a big success. Do I leave this on tonight? Oh, sure. I'd even put more on. Rub some on your pillow, too. Oh, uh, <laughs> and by the way, Miss Livingston, here's a couple of jars of the stuff. Take it along, will you? Give it to some of your friends. Maybe they'd like to come down for some treatments, too. Oh, thank you so much. When should I come again? Well, cool your head off and come back in three days. <laughs> uh, just give the stuff time to work. Thank you so much. Goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye. Say, Kingfish. What is that? Look here. Look at the hair on the back of my hands where that stuff has been. Hmm, that give me an idea. This stuff might be a great brushless shaving cream. Yeah. <laughs> you might not even need a razor. <laughs> Miss Livingston's due back tomorrow. You know we told her to come back in three days. Well, if we're going to put that mess on her head again, I'm going to use a stick, I tell you that. Uh, I'll get it. Hello? This is Mr. Livingston speaking. Oh, yeah. And I just want you to know that as a result of the treatment you gave my wife two days ago, she's losing her hair with a handful. And I'm going down and talk to the district attorney. District attorney? I'm going to have the owner of your beauty salon put in jail. And I'm coming over there at 4 o'clock, and I want my money back. Goodbye. Say, uh, what is this thing about district attorney you said, Kingfish? Uh, that was a man by the name of Mr. Hooper. He said he's making a radio survey and wanted to know what my favorite program was, and I told him district attorney. That's what I said. <laughs>
I tell you why I asked you to drop over here? Well, you can't. What's the trouble, King Craig? Oh, that salve I got from you and them jaws. What in the world did you have into things? Well, there, there, there was a lot of stuff, King Craig. A lot of what stuff? Well, to, to tell you the truth, King Craig, I, I found a lot of different kind of salve and some jaws that wasn't marked. And I got an idea that if I put all them put them all together into one great big salve, something might come out. Something did come out the woman's hair. Yeah, and I'm in trouble. The woman's husband is due here in five minutes, wants his money back, and go have the owner of this company put in jail. Well, you, you, you and Andy are partners, ain't yeah, you? Yeah, me and Andy, uh, Andy, Andy, yeah. Say, just come to me. Maybe I could get out of this. Say, <laughs> here comes Andy down the hall now. Duck in the back door there right quick. So long, shorty. So long. Oh, uh, gotta play sick and get out of this. Oh, me. Uh, come in, Andy. I got hay fever bad here, boy. Uh, what you got? Hay fever. Oh. Wait a minute. Where, where you get the hay fever from? Well, where did anybody get hay fever from? Gray hair salves. That's where I got it. Oh, sure enough? Oh, sure. Went over to the doctor a while ago, and I said, doctor, I'm in bad shape. He looked at me, and he said, I see you allergic to something. He took my blood pressure. Well, I wasn't allergic to that. It wasn't, huh? Oh. <laughs> he looked at my tongue. That wasn't allergenic. So then he said, tell me I'm going to give you the allergic test. He scratched me 35 times with different things. And the minute he scratched my arm with a cover from a jaw salve, my arm swole up like a baseball bat. Hmm, that's too bad. Oh, I just unlucky fella, Andy. The first time I runs into a money-making things like this salve that you put on a woman's head, I got to give it up. I'm going to give you the whole business free gratis as a gift. Well, gee, that's nice of you, Kingfish. Now, if you'll sign this paper I just draw it up here, give you complete ownership of the country, and we'll close the deal. What's on this paper I got to sign? Oh, just a legal document for your own protection, Andy, to keep you from squirming out of making a lot of money. Okay, if you want to give it up, I'll sign it. You got a pen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, here's a fountain pen right here. Yeah. I'm Mr. Livingston, and I want to see you right away. Uh, Just a minute, Mr. Uh, Sign the thing right there, Andy, will you? Where do I sign? Uh, uh, Right there on the bottom line. Ain't no ink in this pen. Uh, Yeah, well, sign it with anything. The treatment you gave my wife is going to cost you plenty. And whoever put that stuff on ahead is going to court. I'm going to sue. Say, Kingfish, uh, how about you signing this thing? Uh, uh, just a minute, mister. You should see my wife's head. How is the frolicles coming? Look here, Stevens. I'm going to sue you for damages. That salve you gave my wife to bring home is the most dangerous stuff I ever saw. Oh, uh, yeah. Sir. I'll be back here in 30 minutes with the district attorney. Goodbye. Come on, Andy, we're going over to see our lawyer, Stonewall, and fight this thing through together. I can't stick with you in this deal, Kingfish. Why? Ka-choo! A hay fever. Oh. Come on, Andy, let's get on in lawyer Stonewall's office here. Yeah. Uh, hello. Oh, excuse me, Stonewall. Didn't know you was on the phone. Uh, just a minute, boys. I'm talking to my client's brother here. Hello? What's that again now? You said it just led your brother out of his cell, huh? Walked him down the long corridor out into the prison yard? Mm-hmm. And marched him up 13 steps. And you said it just put a blindfold on your brother's eyes. Huh? And there's a lot of people standing around. Well, all I can tell you is if they ain't playing blind man's buff, he's in trouble. <laughs> So, so long. And say goodbye to your brother, too. Uh, 
Oh, we is in trouble here, too. Yeah, did you get that jar of salve that we sent you over a half hour ago to analyze? Uh, yes, I did. But I gave it the acid test. Oh, the acid test, huh? Mm, yeah, I put it in a bottle with some acid and ate the acid right up. <laughs> uh, soon while the salve is done, took the hair off the woman's head and we is in trouble. Now, now, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did the jars you gave her have a label on it just like this one? Yeah, they was all alike. Well, you ain't got nothing to worry about because it says on the label here, it says, use at your own risk. That puts you in the clear. Good. I'll call the man and tell him. Oh, Stonewall, you has done saved our lives. You sure is. Now he's in the clear. This will learn people to come to beauty shops they don't know nothing about. Mm. <laughs> well, Barty, if you excuse me, I, I got to go to court see, to defend the client. What's wrong? Well, the, the, the man's wife is suing my client on account. He's always bringing home samples from the place where he works. Yeah, well, what's wrong with bringing home samples? He works in the burlesque theater. Oh. Yeah, well, it was sure nice of you to take me and Ann to home tonight in the taxi cab. Yeah, well, I'm glad to do it, Kingfish, because... From what you say, you two had a narrow escape. Yeah, me and the kingfish almost got into trouble. Yeah, but ha, 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 legally we was in the clear. Yeah. yeah, you might be in the clear, but that was kind of a mean thing to do to the man's wife. Have a hair fall out. Just think how bad a husband must feel about that. Yeah, well, that's his word. Ain't mine now. Well, here's your house right here. Well, boys, uh, will you come in? No, I'll drop Andy off, and then I'll get on home. So long, Kingfish. Yeah, see you tomorrow. See so you tomorrow. long, boy. When you down and out, lift up your head and show there's gonna be a great day. Dodie, dodie. Well, hello there, Sapphire. Hey, look like you're getting ready to go out. I see you got a scarf around your head. Well, I ain't going out, George. I just came in. Yeah, well, honey, I almost got in trouble today, but everything is fine and dandy now. I know one thing, though. There's a certain man in this town that's mighty embarrassed about the way his wife looks. A man by the name of Mr. Livingston. Livingston? Why, that's a coincidence. A Mrs. Livingston that I met at the bridge club two days ago gave me a jar of salve for my gray hair. Sapphire, for heaven's sake, you didn't use it, did you? I already used it, and look, George, I ain't got a hair. Broadcast in the United States by CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, and released to our men and women overseas by the United States Armed Forces Radio Service, the voice of information and education.
information please party. Our board of experts consists first of our two regulars, the encyclopedic John Kieran, editor of the Information Please Almanac, and his gifted colleague, the unique Franklin P. Adams. And our first guest is one of this program's best and oldest friends, that great satirist of the airways, Mr. Fred Allen. And our second guest is another of American's premier funny men, uh, Maine's gift to the other uh, 47 states, Doc Rockwell. How about this one from Mrs. A.W. Gordon of Ventnor, New Jersey? Suppose you're taking a walk, gentlemen. Suddenly you stop. In front of you is a fair de lance. Fair de lance? How do you say that? Fair de lance. Fair de lance. On your right is an American black snake. On your left is an American puff adder. Behind you is a garter snake. In which direction would you run and why? Mr. Kieran, or I have, should I have several hands here. I'm going to come back to Mr. Kieran, but I'm going to give Mr. Adams first crack at this. I'd go back to the garter snake, which is harmless. Now, uh, you would uh, run backwards. Then. That's right. Uh, now, Mr. Kieran, which direction would you run? Anywhere except uh, toward that fair allowance. Yes, that would be the point, Mr. Adams. I'd stop drinking and eliminate all of them. <laughs> Mr. Allen's is the safer uh, thing to do, but Mr. Kieran is uh, uh, correct. Uh, the other three are harmless. The other three are harmless. The American puff adder is harmless. How about the South African puff adder, Mr. Kieran? That is a stranger to me, uh, so I don't know. It's poisonous. It is poisonous. So uh, if you happen to be uh, taking... Well, I know South a lot African. of adders are, and some are not, but uh, the puff, our puff adder is uh, very harmless, like a rabbit. Yes, and what, so is the American black What snake. is the function of a puff adder? What is that? Oh, it eats uh, insects and small, uh, well, it eats frogs. Puffed rice, little things like that. (laughs) Small uh, mammals, too. Small mammals? Yes, mice. Eats mice. Is that so? Stingus. It stingeth. Stingus like an adder. Yes. You're quoting from? I don't know. Old Testament, I'm wasn't it an adder, uh, Mr. Kieran, probably, that Cleopatra held to her breast? Well, it called it an asp. Asp. Oh, that was Burroughs who held the adder to his... Uh... Oh, Burroughs' adding machine. I get it. Boy, it takes a long time to figure those out. You know, we're, we're not as quick as all that on this show, Mr. Well, I don't know. I'm in my declining days. I'm trying to get them all in before I'm <laughs> out of work in every medium. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't decline to come on this show. Here now is one from Bernard Hyman of New York City. Can, I suppose I give you the last couplet, the last two lines of the following famous American poems. Can you recite the first two lines? I'll give you the last couplet, you give me the first couplet. Here's the last couplet. Bid time and nature gently spare the shaft we raise to them and thee. How does that poem begin? That's the way it ends. Mr. Kieran? By the rude... Bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot hurled, heard round the world. That's exactly right. And Mr. Adams, here's quoting from what poem? Uh, Concord, Concord him. Bridge. Uh, Concord him, I guess. Concord so him. It is about Concord Bridge. By whom? R.W. Emerson. R.W. Emerson. All right. Now here's the last couplet. You give me the first. And give her to the god of storms, the lightning and the gale. Mr. Adams? I tear her tattered ensign down, long has it waved on high. Goody, goody, goody. And now who wrote that? What's it called? O.W. Holmes, the senior. Uh, yes. And what's the poem called? Old Ironsides. Old Ironsides. And it's about what? 
We all learned it. Old Ironside. Yes, well, frigate. <laughs> old Ironside. Yes, uh, Mr. Kieran. Frigate Constitution. The old Constitution. If, if this puts any of you in a mood for reciting poetry, we'll be glad to, to admit I'm that. I'm an Ogden Nash man myself. Go ahead, Will. I'll be glad to entertain some Ogden. Well, that's so short that hardly worthwhile reciting. This is a pretty short program. Uh, well, the only one I can think uh, of offhand is the, uh, is, is something like, uh, it's hard when picking soybeans to tell the girl beans from the boy beans. <laughs> Which is Mr. Nash's. I used to be called the Ogden Nash of trash. I wrote uh, when I had Falstaff on the program. Doc Rockwell, you, you care to give us any uh, verses that you remember from your past? Childhood or middle age? Only one I remember of that uh, caliber of oh, high standard. Any caliber will do. Is uh, the first to graze elegy. Well, we will have a couple of lines of that one. All right. The, the plowman can... homeward plods his weary way. Is that about no, a Wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Doc, the plot the really begins to get going. Right. The curfew tolls the nell of parting day. The lowing herd winds slowly o'er the lee. Yeah. The plowman homeward plods his weary way yeah. and leaves the world to darkness and to me. Thanks very much. I often wonder, how did you ever work that into your votable routine, Doc? Well, I'm wondering how I got it in here. <laughs> the doctor, in his medical capacity, thought it was the allergy of the country church life, which confused him. He learned it by mistake. Uh, how about, the, about just thinking of another uh, uh, lovely verse of Ogden Nash about the turtle. Remember the one about the turtle? Uh, no, I can't think let's of see. The turtle lives. Uh, turtle lives twixt plated decks, decks uh, which effectually conceal its sex. Yeah. I think it clever of the turtle in such a fix to be so fertile. It's not the way it <laughs> All right. Uh, E.S. Gerhardt of Philadelphia sends this one in. This is just a one-part question. I'm going to give you some clues to the activities or inventions or beliefs of a famous American. Just tell me who he is. Here's the statement. He sat nude before an open window in a room with a pot-bellied stove, peering through his bifocals at his newspaper. Now, we are jamming together in that one sentence many details from this man's life. Who is uh, it? Benjamin Franklin. Oh, very good. Now, can you prove that for us? That's very swell, Mr. Allen. Well, he, he uh, invented the pot-bellied stove. Yeah, known as the Franklin stove. Yes, got the idea from looking at himself in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the bifocals were his. Yes, he invented those, too. And uh, sitting by the window, he got from Lady Godiva, I guess. Huh? Uh, I don't well, know. Uh, there was a... The rocking chair was his. Uh, we didn't have to, he, uh, I don't think he invented the rocking chair, as far as I know. He, he did invent the Franklin stove and bifocal eyeglasses, and why was he reading newspapers, or why, why were newspapers connected with him, Mr. Adams? Well, because he uh, started them. Yes, he added the Pennsylvania Gazette, which is later known as the Saturday Evening Post. And uh, also, as for the sitting nude before an open window, why would you think he might do that? Uh, Mr. Allen? To see if there's going to be enough rain to go out with his kite to discover lightning. <laughs> well, Franklin was a great believer, one of the earliest believers, I guess, in, in the value of uh, fresh air and sun, that sort of thing. He was a kind of fresh air fiend. Try this one now from Emmy Colwell of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Three simple questions. And a couple of these are up the good doctor's alley. Uh, two out of three. When you candle an egg, what are you looking for? 
hold a candle in front of him. Mr. Kieran. <laughs> You're looking and hoping that you won't find a young chicken in there. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, what, what else do you try to discover when you candle an egg? Oh, or is fresh or not? Yes, Doc Rockwell's an old country boy. You an old egg handler, Doc? Have you ever candled any eggs? It's all new to me. I candle a lot. I was in the poultry business. You were in the poultry business? Yes, sir, and there's money in it. I know there is. I left a lot there. (laughs) You know, Mr. Chairman, you and I have been working together for many years, and I never uh, never fail to be surprised at the number of businesses you quickly got out of. John went from omelet to hamlet, I guess. Did you ever know that John used to be in the sewer business, used to construct sewers and stuff? Nothing would surprise me that John... He's gone down now. He's in radio, but in those days... Now, Doc Rockwell, we know you've had a long and arduous medical training, and uh, (laughs) we expect to draw on it if it's uh, ethical. Uh, When a doctor does a blood count, what is he counting? He's counting the white corpuscles and the red corpuscles. That is correct. There's other, there's other stuff in the, in the blood that you count, something called platelets. Any, everybody, anybody ever hear about those? Yeah. Platelets, little plates. Those are the things that the corpuses are served on after each meal. They, 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 uh... That's probably where the flying saucers come from, people going to pieces all over the world. <laughs> Their platelets are flying around. Uh, when you add lemon juice, gentlemen, to seafood, what are you adding it for? What's the purpose of adding lemon juice to seafood? Uh, Mr. Kieran. To prevent scurvy. (laughs) (laughs) To prevent scurvy, but you might just as well drink the lemon juice without... Oh, I I thought you meant... Pardon me. I I thought you meant on a sea voyage. Oh, I've never eaten a sea voyage. That must be quite... No, I I, I meant seafood. Now, actually, when you add lemon juice to a thing like a a lobster or or any other kind of seafood, what's the purpose of it? Uh, Make it taste better. Make it taste better. Uh, Mr. Adam. Yeah, but it doesn't. No, it doesn't. (laughs) Don't you like lemon juice? No, not on any uh, seafood, whatever. Is that so? You take your seafood raw with no... uh... I take it neat, or it's no good. Is that so? What do you use for chaser? Nothing at all. Well, most, most times people use uh, lemon juice to do what Mr. Kieran says. It brings out the flavor. Mm. Uh, Mr. Adams? There's some uh, seafood that you put lemon juice and catsup on and, uh, so you could hardly notice it. Yeah. We've had catsup on this program before. Remember, Mr. Adams is always talking about catsup? We had Mr. Catsup, we had Mr. Adams using... <laughs> had Mr. Adams using catsup as a, as a cosmetic a couple yeah. of weeks ago on this program. <laughs> Gentlemen, how about this one from Mary L. Elberback of Minneapolis? Uh, get all on this very simple poetical question. Who or what is it that seeks entrance in poems or stories that involve these words? They all have to do with someone or something that's seeking entrance. The first phrase is, open then the door. Open then the door. Now, that's from a poem. Uh, Doc Rockwell. Robiet. Ah, that's the one, all right. And uh, what's the situation? Who, who uh, wants to have the door opened? Uh, Mr. Fitzgerald, who translated Omar. Uh, yes. I don't recall the phrase. I don't recall the phrase. Well, your answer is quite correct, though, Doc Rockwell. How about it, Mr. Kieran? And as the cock crew, those who stood before the tavern shouted, open then the door. You know how little while we have to stay, and once departed, may return no more. How do you like that, Doc? Isn't that pretty good? Right. Yeah, he's good. at he, he just... Very good at poetry. Oh, he's good. He nails them. He's probably Keats under another name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so it's poultry. Poultry, that's right. Frank says he thinks it's poultry. (laughs) 
is an hell of a difference, Tan. Say, that's very good. Uh, open then the door, uh, then it's people standing before a tavern, and as uh, Doc Rockwell said, it's from the Rubiat of Omakaya. Now, how about this phrase, open sesame? Who wants to uh, get what open? How's that phrase uh, used in uh, old legend or story? Open sesame. Open sesame, uh, Doc Rockwell. Arabian Nights. Yeah. What story? Uh, is it the Aladdin and the Lamp? No, uh, take, uh, take the other one that we know. There are usually two that people are familiar with. At least uh, I'm familiar with only two, Mr. Kieran. Well, uh, Alababa. Yeah. Alababa. What's the situation in Alababa? How does that open sesame come into it? That's, I think, the password of the uh, thieves, isn't it? Yes. And that's the way he traps them. Yes. What does sesame mean? Well, sesame is a, is a plant. Yeah, it's a seed, I guess. Isn't it? Do they make kind of oil out of it, Mr. Karen? Well, yes, but first the plant you know, mm -hmm. produces the seed. I know I read that story as a kid, and for many years I said open sea same. Took a long time to know it was sesame. <laughs> With lemon juice on it. Sea same and lilies by uh, Ruskin. Yes, that's the one. Now, how about this? Open here, I flung the shutter. Open here, I flung the shutter. It's from what poem and what's being opened, and Mr. Kieran will tell us. And with many have flaunt and flutter in their step the stately raven from the something days of yore by Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, the door is open. And with it's many a flirt and flutter. The step the stately raven of the saintly days of yore, I guess it was. Yeah. Good enough. Well, that gives us uh, three out of three. How about this one from Doris Fleischer of Brooklyn, New York? At what time of day do people hunt or fish the following? Opossum. When do they hunt the opossum? What part of the day or night? Uh, night. At night. Uh, why so? Well, it's a nocturnal animal, isn't it? Six yeah. days. And goes out hunting for its own food at night. Yeah. Usually we call it the possum, except for the Irish uh, possum, which of course is known as the opossum. How about lobsters? Uh, when you go out... Uh, uh, looking for lobsters, what time of day do you generally go out in, Doc? Why you go out any time of the day? I thought you went out early in the morning. Well, most of them go out early. They used to say the first one out gets the lobster. Somebody else gets the trap ahead of them. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> Mr. Kieran? Well, you, you don't... Uh, it isn't any particular time of the day that they come around. Your trap is set. and You just go and look at your traps once a day. Yes, but I, I had an idea that you went out early in the morning, looked at your lobster pots, or whatever they're called, so that you could collect them and, and ship them out that same day. Well, that's what I have Well, most of them go out, they have so many pots. Yeah. Some of them have three or four hundred, and they've got to start early in order to get mm -hmm. through for the day. Uh, are you a lobster fisherman? Well, I have been doing a lot of it. I went right? out with Doc one time. He had his uh, lobster pots named after his friends. Did I have a pot named after me yeah, up there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, must have been a big pot. Oh, sure. Uh, you might have a pot named after you after tonight, Mr. Fatter. <laughs> <laughs> Doc gets back up there and gets his pots out. That's why we call this the Information Please Party. Doc had the only system, I think. Did anyone else have a, a system like yours? where each trap was accounted for, was in the book, and if a trap didn't do well, it was taken out of that location and moved to another place where it might have a better chance. Did the others do that? Well, I had trouble starting in. I knew nothing about it. I asked one fellow, he'd tell you to make the trap one way, another one said to make it another way, another one said to do this, so I knew nothing about it, so I had a lot of different traps, oh. and then identified them with names and kept a record. Sure, sure. So I found out which trap did the best business. And did Fred have a have Fred's a, trap did Fred, well. Still yeah, doing did well. well. Still doing yeah, well. Yeah. Doing better than I am. I, <laughs> I might end up in it the way things are going. Mr. Adam. My guess would be that the uh, the trap named after uh, Mr. Allen was never shut. Oh. 
that's why it did so well. <laughs> but the construction of a trap is very interesting, if you're interested. I am. Doc yes. makes them up there. Well, you tell have them. To make we them. can't buy them already, Major. You've got to make them. It's a peculiar thing. This a, a trap is divided. First, it's a, sort of a, a half of a cylinder. Yeah. And that, in turn, is divided into a forward and a back part. Now, the front part, where the lobster are entered, there's two nets, or they call them heads, on either yeah. side. The bait is hanging on a string. Now, the lobster comes in there to eat. Hmm. And the back part, there's another long net with an inclined plane goes into it, and there's where you catch the lobster. Now, they technically, the lobsters, call, the, the lobstermen call that back part the parlor. Uh, the lobsters pretty. come in and eat it, and why they go in this parlor, nobody knows. Uh, <laughs> they eat it, and there they end up in the back so. part. There's you nothing know, in there, no reason for them to go in, but there's where they are. <laughs> well, I'm very like, grateful. Mr. Like a great many of the... Families years ago used to say you had to die to get in the parlor. In the... You know, Adams has got more information about lobsters now than he can digest, Doc. I think we've got to go on to the next part of this. He may story. reconsider that lemon attitude. How about, uh, when do you hunt foxes, gentlemen? What part of the day, generally, if you are a fox hunter? When do you go out hunting for foxes? Uh, perhaps more particularly in England than in our own country. Uh, Mr. Kieran? Well, they generally meet uh, in the morning. Mm, how early? Well, about uh, dawn, uh, it's a good time for a scent, for the carrying of the scent, because when the sun gets up and dries off the, the dew or any uh, frost that may be on, then the scent uh, isn't carried so easily. Yes, well, scent another... clings where there is moisture. Well, isn't there another reason, too? I'm sure that's right, Mr. Kieran. Mr. Adams? Another reason is that they have uh, the hunt breakfast to eat and drink about... Uh, Nine or ten o'clock in the morning. You mean, you mean they hunt the fox in order to have the breakfast afterward? Or they yes. have the breakfast afterward because afterward, they have to hunt they the fox? They can't get the breakfast fast enough. I see. <laughs> Just one breakfast call. Well, foxes, of course, look the for their breakfast. food early in the morning and early in the evening, too, but it can't hunt in the Oh, evening. they hunt at night, too. At night, too, but you, but the, uh, you couldn't hunt for them at night with any, any light. Why don't you ever see the hounds in front of I.J. Fox? Now, there's been... <laughs> <laughs> no, we have to take it up with I.J. Fox. Gentlemen, we have now covered opossum, lobsters, and foxes. Let's pass on to this one from M. Abramson of Mount Vernon, New York. Uh, about words, gentlemen. Get two out of three. Can you give the common English word in which the plural is formed by adding R-E-N to the singular? Common English word? Yes, Mr. Adams. Children. Yes, very simple. Child, children. Uh, the common English word in which the plural is formed by changing an A to an E. Some of these plurals, as you see, are very singular indeed. But... Uh, what would that be? Changing an A to an E. One of the commonest words. You use it all the time, Mr. Gary. Women. Yes. Or, 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 or man. Man, man. That's man, right. man. Uh, woman, women. Give me a word in which the plural is formed by not changing the word at all. Mr. Adams. Can't no. do it. Uh, all right. It was mongoose, but it isn't. No. Uh, what's the plural of mongoose? Mongooses. 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 That does change. It adds an S. Now, what word uh, doesn't change at all to form the plural? Woodfish. Oh, oh, fish, of course, Doc. That's uh, very good. Fish, sheep. Gentlemen, how about this from William McCaffrey of New York City? This is about famous comedians, gentlemen. I should expect uh, Mr. Allen and Doc Rockwell to help us here. What comedian began his career as a juggler and a drowner? A juggler and a drowner. Mr. Allen. Uh, W.C. Fields. Well, now, what does that mean, a juggler and a drowner? When was well, a juggler? drowning was uh, uh, sort of a sideline. <laughs> uh, now, he was employed as a juggler in Atlantic City, I think, in his early days. And to attract people to the show, to get them to come, you know, to crowd around the show, he used to 
jump in the water and pretend he was drowning and shout for help. And when the crowd gathered around, another man would uh, tell them that the show was about to start. So the Fields would dry himself off and appear as a juggler yeah. in, during the program. Well, how, how long did he uh, do this drowning act? Uh, just for a few months, I think, till he got uh, dry enough and enough money enough to get out of Atlantic City. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, Fields complained that he did this, as you say, I think it was for a couple of weeks. He, he, uh, he drowned 168 times. And by that time, he said he was very waterlogged. And, and it, as a matter of fact, it turned him against water in general for the rest of his life. It sure did. <laughs> uh, there are a million stories about Fields. I'll entertain one, if any one of the four of you would like to tell a story about that very great comedian. Mr. Allen, some, something you can... Uh, well, I knew him quite well, and there are so many things. Uh, the, only, the only thing I ever had in common with Mr. Fields, uh, he and I made two of the longest jumps or trips that, that actors have ever made, as far as I know. He, he came one time from South Africa to Syracuse to open with a show and was canceled after the first <laughs> night. And uh, I went one time from Shreveport, Louisiana, to Brisbane, uh, Australia, in Queens, and didn't do very well. I could have stayed home. I'd have saved a lot of trouble for the people in Brisbane and myself, too. Well, you, uh, you, uh, you didn't have any contact with Mr. Fields during this? No, except that we were, we were keeping the trains busy between the two of us. It is nice. And how about someone who started as a low comedian and a hoofer and ended as a very great actor? Uh, Mr. Adams. Fred Allen. <laughs> well, uh, I couldn't dance and I can't act, so Frank's wrong both ways. Well, he's trying to be nice, Alan. I know, that's You've got to take these things as they come. Uh, no, he began as a low comedian, but did end as a, as a great straight actor. Uh, that is a, certainly a distinguished one. Charlie but... Chaplin? Well, you know, I think that's a very fair answer, Doc. George Cole. Uh, Charlie Chaplin certainly began as a knockabout comic. And he certainly was a great actor. Uh, Mr. George M. Cohen did also. Would that be true? I wouldn't know. He, wasn't, he was never a low comedian. Don't think so, He no. was pretty low when I first saw him. <laughs> <laughs> and right. he did very well in our wilderness. Yes, he was. That's a very fine job. But I can think of one, of one other. That was Walter Houston. Didn't Walter Houston be, began, begin as a hooper, Mr. Allen? It's well, he, he did an act. He really wasn't a low comedian, I don't think. He no. wrote songs. He did an act with... Uh, his wife at that time, Whipple in Houston, it was called. Yes, Bayon Whipple. Well, we got did very well on that, gentlemen. Uh, try this one now from Beth Bodenweiser of Chicago. Can you quote lines that mention three kinds of persons or things that you might find in a hospital? Lines of poetry, lines of well-known lines of prose that mention anything that you might find in a hospital, whether a person or a thing. I'll try Mr. Adams first. Oh, bed, delicious bed. Uh, you certainly found a bed in the hospital. Well, what's that from? Don't know that line. I think it's uh, something that uh, Thomas Hood may have written. Uh, you just made it up and you're now... No, I did Thomas not. Hood. He made it up. He did make it. All right, all right. You've scared me into it, Mr. Kieran. The soldier of the Legion lay dying in Algiers. There was lack of woman's nursing. There was dearth of woman's tears. Oh, that's very affecting, yes. It's very sad, you know. It is very sad. And, and nursing, of course, is the, is the line. Yeah. That, yes, certainly. That's perfectly good. Can you think of any others, Mr. Kieran? A wet sheet and a flowing sail. Uh, yeah. <laughs> True enough. You know, certainly find part of that. Well, of course, that's a different kind of sheet. Yeah. Uh, think of any others? I was well, thinking of something. I was a president uh, uh, that something in the hospital was named after. Who was that? James Madison. Oh. <laughs> Say, can I borrow, Doc, from a line that you uh, gave us just a little while ago? 
The lowing herd winds slowly orderly. There's an orderly in a hospital. Oh. Oh. Okay. Here's one from Stephen Mulligan of Columbus, Ohio. Can you distinguish, gentlemen, between a sweet potato and a yam? Don't kid around about this. Got to have a real distinction. Sweet potato and yam. Mr. Kieran. Well, you may, in the first place, there's a difference in color. In the second place, there's a difference in taste. And in the third place, I love sweet potatoes and hate yams. <laughs> and I don't want one foisted off on me, as usually happens in New York these days. Whatever became of good sweet potatoes? I don't know. Uh, but there is a there. Those are three good differences. Now it's Well, one is the, the yam uh, is more, has a greater sugar content in yes. for one thing. And it's a deeper... Uh, orange than the, uh, there's more yellow in the ordinary sweet potato. And what, a, do they belong to the same botanical family? Well, there you have me. One is called a yam, but uh, they're tubers. I, I don't know. Have yeah. you got the Latin names? Uh, I'm, I'm going to give them to you after we've got a little information from Mr. Adams here. A sweet potato is a musical instrument known as an ocarina. That is true. And, of course, you use it in yam sessions. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, there, there is a botanical difference, too, gentlemen. Uh, shall I... Uh, yes, my, sure. If, if we can teach you anything, Mr. Kieran, this is a... That's all uh, right. This is, this is big stuff on this program. Now, the sweet potato is the root of a tropical vine known as Ipomea batatus, from which we get the word potato. It is related to the morning glory. Now, you'd never suspect that. Yes, I would, from mm -hmm. the Latin name. Oh, you would. All yeah. right, I wouldn't have known it. Now, that is the original potato. That's right. The ordinary potato. Potato, that's where we get the name from. That's right. Now, the potato that we speak of as potato is a mere pretender. Uh, just a false Solanum. Potato. Solanum tuberosa. I beg your pardon? That's the Latin name okay, of the white okay. potato. Okay, all right. And I'm afraid that's all we'll have time for. Our best thanks to Mr. L and Doc Rockwell. And now another message from our announcer who'll tell you how much the experts have lost during this program and who our guests will be next week. And that is where information, please, uh, ended rather abruptly. And now we're going on to an episode of Radio City Playhouse. The National Broadcasting Company presents Radio City Playhouse, Attraction 50. Ladies and gentlemen, here is your director, Harry W. Junkin. Thank you, Fred. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From our mail on last week's show, Tension in 643, here are two letters. A lady from Missouri writes, quote, I'm thoroughly sick of murder, insanity, and tragedy. Tension in 643 was a horrible show, unquote. The other letter from a lady in Chicago read in part, quote, Tension in 643 held my husband and me absolutely spellbound right to the very end. Keep up the good work, unquote. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this only goes to prove that nobody can please all of the people all of the time. However, to those of you who have written so many letters about Radio City Playhouse and the reprise series on 8 by request, our sincere thanks for your interest and friendliness. And now for tonight's show. David Gothard as Bradley Lane and Kathleen Cordell as Jane, his wife, uh -uh. in... Wait a minute. Why don't you mention my name? In uh, Level Crossing, Attraction 50. All right. I can wait. On Radio City Playhouse. Playhouse. <laughs> 
Listen. It was the train that gave me the idea. I stood there at the deserted level crossing, and suddenly I knew how I could kill John Dunn. The crossing is dangerous. There's a sharp curve. Belts of fir trees to the right and the left screen the trains. Suddenly they burst out of nowhere and thunder across the six-foot-wide dirt path. It isn't really a crossing at all. There are never any cars and very few people. It's just a path in the Connecticut woods that crosses a railway track 300 yards from our house. You could be on the south side, think you had plenty of time to walk across to the north side, and be fooled. The whole thing would look like an accident. Now I knew how to kill him. I just had to fill in the details. Why did I want to kill him? Well, that goes back a long time, more than a year. I think the idea of killing John Dunn occurred to me at breakfast a year ago. Jane and I were finishing our coffee. And suddenly, Jane said something that made me realize she was suspicious. More coffee, Brad? Uh, no, thanks. Brad, would you put down the paper for a moment? Sorry, darling. Something on your mind? Yes, I'd like to ask you a question. Well, don't look so solemn, honey. What is it? Uh, I don't quite know how to say it. My, but we're being ominous this morning. I've been going to ask you for a couple of weeks, but I haven't had the nerve. Well, what on earth are you talking about? Well, I... What became of the $2,500 commission you got for the DeBecca contract? What do you mean? I just wondered what became of the money. One of us must have spent it. I did. Well, good heavens, Jane, you don't have to look so accusing about it. Is that the way I look? I didn't mean to. It's just that when we were first married, we never had any secrets at all. We'd bring home your salary, and we'd put the actual cash in little budget envelopes. So much for rent, so much for clothes, so much for entertainment. Now I don't seem to have any idea of where it goes. Every so often, there are fairly large sums that, well, they just seem to disappear. Well, are you going to tell me? Or not? Jane, I didn't want to mention it because I, I thought it might annoy you. To be perfectly frank, I I'm afraid I've been a little foolish. I bought some mining stock, a mine in Canada. Jerry Walton suggested I take a bit of a flurry with him. Purely speculation, but quite possibly a good thing. A friend of his really struck it rich up there, and we thought that we might as well get on the wagon, too, just in case. What's the matter? Nothing. Go on. Well, to make a long story short, it turned out to be a dud. The vein was only surface, and the property was so isolated that the shipping problem was more than we could lick, so we... So we lost $2,500. Yes, dear, I'm afraid we did. On a mine that Jerry Walton recommended. Well, he didn't exactly recommend it. But it was it. his idea. Yes. Yes, it was. Oh, look, honey, I, I'm going to be late for the office. I'd better run. Now, don't fret about it. So you lose $2,500. That's life. Yes. Yes, I guess it is. Mr. Jerry Walton, please. Hello, Jerry. This is Bradley Lane. I'm fine. How are you? Good. Uh, look, Jerry, I have a favor to ask. 
I've done things for you in the past, and I'd, uh, I'd appreciate it if you'd uh, tell a little white lie for me. Well, to Jane, as a matter of fact, I'd like you to back me up in a slight, uh, shall we say, fabrication. You see, I think she'll telephone you this morning and ask you if it's really true that we lost some money together in a mine in Canada. I'd like you to say yes, that we did. I told her I lost $2,500. Jerry didn't want to, but he backed me up. Jane did phone him that very day. Neither of us mentioned it again, but I knew she was ashamed of her suspicions. We forgot about the whole thing, and in a couple of days, we're back to our old relationship. Warm, loving, wonderful. I kept paying John Dunn small amounts for about a year. A hundred dollars here, fifty there, nothing Jane would notice. Then one day he came into my office. This mean, crafty-minded little clerk with ink and nicotine on his fingers. He waited until everybody else had gone. Then he walked right into my private office without even knocking. What do you want, John? I'm afraid we have to have another little chat. We do. Yes, we do. I have to have $1,000 by the end of the week. I've told you not to speak to me in the office. You get privileges now that make other employees suspicious. Mr. Lane, I think that's only fair. You promised me you'd confine your demands to reasonable amounts. After all, I gave you my entire commission on the tobacco contract. But this is an unexpected expense. Well, avoid it. But I can't avoid it. Look, John, let's face the facts. I can only pay you so much, five or six hundred a year, I can afford. I can't ever pay you a thousand dollars in a lump sum. The tobacco money was different. I'm afraid the answer is no. Then you'd better change your mind. I need a thousand dollars by next Friday night. Did it ever occur to you that you're in this as much as I am? It did, but I have a way out. If Mr. Harrison asks me, I've got a perfect answer. This is a very dangerous accusation, Mr. Harrison, but I'm afraid we fired the wrong man. Brader didn't steal that money. Mr. Lane did. It's taken me a long time to prove it. I always suspected Brader was innocent. I, I've been poring over the books for months. And this morning, this morning, I'll say, I found it. Now, don't try to pin me with any accessory or accomplice, Rap. I know what I'm doing, Mr. Lane. Believe me, I know what I'm doing. I can't possibly pay you $1,000. Bradley Lane, the treasurer of Harrison Winfield Incorporated, found guilty of embezzlement. Won't people be shocked? But you can't get blood out of a stone. I've just bought a house. I, I, I've got a lot of expense. I bought another car. There's nothing the matter with the car you've got. I promised Jane a car of her own for her birthday. Then you'd better break your promise. But what'll I say to her? She's ordered it. I've paid her deposit. Use the installment plan. But she'd know. She'd find out. Let her. Why don't you tell her that you let an innocent man be fired? Let an innocent man be blamed for money you stole from this Shut girl. Shut up! Why don't you? If she knew where the money was going, if she knew you were paying it to keep out of jail. Now, look, Mr. Lane, I'll be out to your house next Thursday night at half past nine. You have a thousand dollars in small bills for me, or on Friday morning you'll wish you'd never been born. <laughs> dragged by. I couldn't work, I couldn't sleep. Then on the Wednesday, I got the idea at the level crossing. It suddenly all fitted together in my brain. 
As luck would have it, not that there is any such thing, Jane had an engagement on the Thursday. I'd be alone in the house with the maid. It was perfect. I just had to make sure of every detail. All day Thursday, I was shaking and nervous. Then when Jane left for her club meeting, I went into action. I rehearsed it step by step. This had to be perfect. Not a single loophole. I rehearsed it for the last time, just before John Dunn arrived. If he's catching the 10 o'clock, he'll have to leave here at 9.50. It takes 10 minutes to walk to the station. So I'll set the clock ahead 10 minutes. Ahead 10 minutes. He'll really be leaving at 9.40. And that's it. When the clock says 10 to 10, it'll really be only 20 to 10. Now the hammer. Must be here somewhere. Up. Oh, here it is. Hammer in my overcoat pocket. That's it. Oh, that's the clock, the hammer. Now the liquor. There's about eight ounces of liquor, so say three tablets. One, two, three. There. Now, shake it. There we are. The clock, the hammer in my overcoat, the liquor, glasses I've got. We'll go out the study door and walk down the path to the crossing. I'll kill him. Put him across the tracks. Get back here. Mr. Dunn to see you, Mr. Lane. Well, John, it's a shame to bring you way out here just to talk business for ten minutes. Well, I'm glad to come, Mr. Lane. Is there anything you want, Mr. Lane? No, nothing, Alice, thank you. Uh, shut the door, will you? Yes, Mr. Lane. Well, now that you're here, we might as well be sociable. You want a drink? All right. This is the last of some very good scotch. What do you want, water or soda? Uh, soda. Right. There you are. Aren't you having one? I most certainly am. What's the matter? Are you afraid I'll poison you? I think you'd like to. No, I've decided to. Well, here's to you. Cheers. You've decided to what? I've decided not to pay you. I don't think that's wise at all. I look at it this way. I'll go in tomorrow morning and confess to Mr. Harrison that I stole money from the firm five years ago. I'll tell him that I'm selling this house, that I'll pay it back. I'm quite sure he won't prosecute me. That sort of scandal isn't very nice for investment houses. The worst he can do is fire me. No more scotch like this. No more Connecticut home. No more country club. Doesn't it seem a shame? I've made up my mind. You're really serious? Yes, I am. You're not going to give me the thousand tonight? I'm not going to give you any more, ever. Oh, then I might as well be going. I suppose you had. Isn't there a train back at ten o'clock? That's right. You've time for another drink. It's only ten minutes from here to the station. You're sure this is absolutely final? Quite final. Well, then I may as well be going. I'll walk to the station with you. All right, if you want to. Um, let's go out this door here. Hmm? Yeah. All right. Oh, why, the overcoat is not that cold. Well, sometimes there's a chill in the air up here. You ready? 
Go ahead. Thanks. There's a step there from the patio to the ground. I have it. Look here, Mr. Lane. Supposing I made it 500, would that... No, John, I'm finished. I've decided quite calmly to face... And this is where I come into the story. Who am I? That doesn't matter. John Dunn and Bradley Lane are quite oblivious to me. They pay no attention to the chill beauty of the October night. Bradley Lane's hand is hard on the handle of the hammer in his overcoat pocket. He is looking at John Dunn's felt hat estimating where and how hard he should hit. There will be very little blood, and it will take only a moment to lay the unconscious body of John Dunn across the tracks at the crossing. I think you're making a great mistake, Mr. Lane. I'm perfectly willing to moderate my demands. No, John. I'm finished. What's the matter? I don't know. I, I feel a little dizzy. Dizzy? Uh, it's nothing. I'm all right. I shouldn't have had that drink on an empty stomach, I guess. Well, I guess this is as good a place as any. Stop a minute, will you, John? Why? What do you want? Mr. Lane. Mr. Lane! Oh, I... you'd blackmail me, would you, you dirty, cheap little rat? Let me go. I'll find you on the crossing, cut the ribbons. Oh, please, that name of heaven, Mr. Lane. I'm going to kill you. I am. I am. I... Oh, don't get away from me. Go home, go home. Go anywhere but get away from me. You see, he couldn't do it. He lost his nerve. At the last moment, Bradley Lane lost his nerve. He turned around and ran for his house, just as fast as his legs would carry him. John Dunn stands there swaying. He knows he's been very, very lucky. The relief makes him a little unsteady on his feet. When he finally reaches the level crossing, he stubs his toe on the rail and falls. When he falls, he hits his head on the opposite rail. He lies there, alive, but unconscious. His hat falls from his head and rolls. Then a gust of wind catches it and blows it back across the track in the direction of Bradley Lane's house. It catches on a stump and stays still. In the meantime, Bradley Lane is almost home. He suddenly knows a great peace. He is not a murderer. He rings the bell of his front door, almost sobbing with relief. Oh, I must have been crazy. I must have been crazy to even thought I could kill him. I must have been crazy. Mr. Lane. Hello, Alice. I've... I forgot my keys. Why, Mr. Lane, I didn't even hear you go out. 
I walked Mr. Dunn to the station. I'm sorry to disturb you. That's all right, Mr. Lane. Mrs. Lane just came in. She's upstairs. Thank you. Anything else, Mr. Lane? Uh, nothing, thanks. I'm going to bed. Uh, by the way, the clock in my den is ten minutes fast. Set it, will you? Yes, Mr. Lane. Must have been crazy. Crazy. Hello, darling. I just uh, got in. <sighs> What is it? You look so strange. Oh, Jane, I've got to tell you something. Oh, uh, please don't say anything or interrupt me because... Fred, you're crying. No, no not now. About an hour ago, I... I was going to... Jane, I don't know where to start. Darling, what is it? I sit down here on the bed. Now, what is it? You're shaking. Brad, what's happened to you? What's wrong? I almost murdered John Dunn tonight. You what? Yes. I was going to kill him. And then... Then I didn't. Darling, I've never seen you so upset. What are you trying to say? Brad, what is it? Jane, when we were married, there, there were so many expenses I couldn't meet that I... that I stole some money. Brad! From the firm, $4,000. Brad, surely you're not serious. You don't mean it. Of course I mean it. Do I look like I'm joking? What? I stole $4,000 of the firm's money and I let old man Brader take the blame. They fired him. Oh, no, this isn't happening. John Dunn found out. He never believed Brader was guilty. And he kept poring over the books until he finally found the proof he needed. It took him a long time to get the evidence, but he got it. Ever since then, I've been paying him off. Oh. A week ago, he asked for a thousand, said he needed it. I made up my mind to kill him. I put some of my sleeping tablets into the whisk. Brad, darling, please don't. Now let me tell it. You might as well hear everything. I had it all planned. I doped the whiskey. Oh, no. It didn't affect me because I've had to take stuff to put me to sleep ever since this thing started. Then I took him out the side door. First, I moved the clock in the den ten minutes. Then we started out to walk to the station. I was going to hit him on the head, oh, no. lay his body across the railway tracks, and be home here by the time the train went past. Then I was going to call Alice and make some remark about how I hoped Mr. Dunn took the right train, maybe ask her for coffee, and that would be my alibi. That I was home when the train hit him. That train was supposed to be running over him right now. I lost my nerve, Jane. I had the hammer in my hand all ready to do it, and I... Then I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Oh, my poor darling, what you suffered. I ran home. I threw the hammer into the bushes and ran home. I'm going in tomorrow and tell Mr. Harrison the whole story. We'll pay back the money. I'm sure he won't prosecute me. I'll, I'll just resign. Yes. Oh, Jane, darling, I've been crazy. I've been dishonest and weak and crazy, but... I did it because I love you. Or toast, Brad? I can't eat. Oh, Brad, it's all right. We've got our health. We've got each other. You made a mistake, that's all. Lots of people make mistakes. I let Brader take the blame. You can make it up to him. They'll hire him back. You can clear him. Brad, this is a new leaf. You know, I'm glad it happened. Glad? Well, I knew the money was going somewhere. I thought you were... Well... Keeping somebody. Oh, I didn't know what to think. No, I don't suppose I ever really imagined you were doing anything like that, but... Since we've been well off, it's, it's, been, it's been different somehow. Oh, Brad, I'll help you. 
I will. Mr. Lane. Oh, Mr. Lane, the most terrible thing. They just found Mr. Dunn. What? The train ran over him last night at the level cross and cut him right clean in half. may proceed with the witness. Thank you, Your Honor. Dr. Southford, I understand you prescribed sleeping tablets for Mr. Lane. That is right. The autopsy on the deceased was difficult. The coroner, however, has established the fact medically that there were traces of the drug in the deceased's stomach. Why did the drug make the deceased groggy, as Mr. Lane suggests, yet seem to have no effect on Mr. Lane himself? Because Mr. Lane's system had built up a tolerance for the drug. He was used to it because he took it every night? That is right. How long have you been a major, Mr. and Mrs. Lane? Three years, sir. Have you ever seen Mr. Lane tamper with the clocks before? No, sir. What exactly did he ask you to do to the clock in the den? He told me it was fast and to set it back ten minutes. Oh. Do you recognize this hammer? Yes, sir. It belonged to Mr. Lane. Where did he keep it? In the drawer of the desk in his den. Thank you. Mr. Lane, what time did Mr. Dunn arrive at your home on the night in question? About 9.30. But you had set the clock ahead ten minutes? Yes. So that it was really closer to 9.20? Yes, and what time did he leave? Ten to ten. By the same reasoning, actually twenty to ten. Yes. And you left by the study door instead of the front door. Yes. Why? Because I... You know why I was going to kill him. Yes, Mr. Lane, I know. I thought the jury should hear it again. You walked along the road to the crossing and you took the hammer out of your pocket. Yes. And I am to understand that this sudden, uh... I believe you called it change, came upon you at the exact moment you had the hammer raised to strike Mr. Dunn on the head. Yes. Then you threw the hammer away. Yes. After you'd had your change of heart. Yes. Since you had nothing to conceal, why did you throw the hammer away? I've told you it made me sick. It I... made you sick? Yes. The defense has made much of the fact that you made no attempt to sneak into the house. Instead, you rang the front doorbell. Why did you do this? I had forgotten my keys. I see. So that even if you wanted to, you couldn't have opened the study door. No. It was necessity then, rather than change of heart, that made you ring the front doorbell. I, I didn't care then. I'd done nothing. I had nothing to conceal, sir. Yet so I... you threw the hammer away. I told Mr. you I... Lane, please, I realize that you have a very sensitive disposition. Please don't get upset. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this fantastic story of Bradley Lane's is ridiculous. He has admitted being a thief. Being blackmailed, hating John Dunn, drugging his whiskey, planning his murder, going with him to the crossing, and we found the deceased hat on the south side of the crossing. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, there is only one possible verdict.
something will happen. There's still time for the reprieve to come. But, darling, please don't cry. Brad, but you didn't do it. You didn't do it. It's all circumstantial. Please, darling, don't cry. I'll get the reprieve. I'm sure they won't... They won't do it. I... They're coming. They're coming! Please, darling. But he did it, but I tell you. You can't do it. You can't. Innocent people never get electrocuted for murders they didn't commit. Innocent people do sometimes. Bradley Lane did. You see, there is a rule in life which governs motives as well as acts. There is also a verse in the Bible which states, As a man soweth, so shall he also reap. And, oh, who am I? Oh, yes, I am luck. just heard Level Crossing, Attraction 50 on Radio City Playhouse, as written, directed, and produced by Harry W. Junkin. Bradley Lane was David Gothard. Jane was Kathleen Cordell. Other players included James Monks, Charles Penman, Connie Lemke, and Ralph Bell. The script was based on a short story by F. Wills Crofts, and the music was composed and conducted by Dr. Roy Shield. Next week on Radio City Playhouse, Jan Miner and Arnold Moss in a profoundly moving story called Blackout. We hope you'll join us. Coming up on 8 by request as item 7, the exciting new Swedish actress Marta Torren in Soundless, one of the most successful shows ever presented on Radio City Playhouse. That's item 7 this Thursday on 8 by request. Good night, everybody. Collins speaking. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Flying Continental today, sir? No, not today. You can't fly Continental?
Leave a friend home to weeds Teach your dreams how to fly Spread your wings, say goodbye Get away, right away Like today, for once in a lifetime Get into this world Take your wife by surprise Kiss the tears in your eyes Pack your bags just for two You're with us, we're with you Get away, right away Like today, for once in a lifetime Get into this world And it makes the going great And it makes the going great Together, there is the airline of business. Throughout the U.S. and 13 foreign lands, the airline trusted by business travelers for a half century and more. United Airlines, rededicated to giving you the service you deserve. Come fly the friendly skies. Like to fly up, up and away. Wouldn't you like to fly up and away? If you take our hand, we'll chase your dream across the sky. For we can fly, we can fly up, up and away. How beautiful, how beautiful to fly. Pick a star in the twilight canopy And search the world for the sights you long to see Your heart is young, you're alive, so come with me T-W-A vacation on Continental Airlines it starts the moment you step on board. We really move our for you. It's roomy. It's relaxing. It's delicious. Make your every wish come true. They can even arrange the things we forgot in the air. On Continental Airlines. Wow. Hot dogs and potato chips. We really move our for you. Continental Airlines, the proud bird with the golden tail. For this old time radio grab bag. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed some of those vintage airline commercials. 
We'll see you next time. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. Okay, that's a lawsuit.